Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. So good to be back with our church family again after retreating from Calgary for several weeks to spend expended time with my Lord and um, my wife, Gwen, and those are two different individuals. Um, <laughs> and also with our family. Uh, Someone has said, you know, you need a break when you start looking like your passport picture. (laughs) Well, after our time away, I still look like my passport picture. I'm not sure anything will ever fix that. But I do feel much better, and for that I am immensely grateful. In the weeks um, that we... In the weeks that we were in Calgary this summer, we were able to visit um, some of our other campuses and just to hear as we we talked to person after person, story after story of how God has been changing lives uh, through the people and ministry of our church. And just as an example, um, this summer, uh, we know of at least 25 children uh, who made first-time decisions for Jesus Christ. And we also know of over 40 people Uh, who were baptized. And so we just give um, just such great thanks to God for His goodness. We just praise Him for His supernatural, life-changing work that He's doing in us, through us, and among us. I also want to express my thanks to all of those who made our summer services a blessing to all. And not only those who were engaged in our worship services, but also those engaged in ministries behind the scenes to our children, our youth, and also other adults. And I want to thank all of you for being so faithful to God in your living, your serving, and your giving. The reality is without your faithfulness, uh, we would not be able to impact lives and advance the mission that God has called us to. As we enter another ministry season, I just want to ask that, that you would pray about where God wants you to invest all that He's given to you, the time, the abilities, the gifts, the resources that He's blessed you with. And I encourage you to connect with uh, one of the pastors or ministry leaders or one of the volunteers in your campus uh, and inquire how you can join us and help us and advancing the mission we've been called to as a church, which is all about introducing people to Jesus and helping them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And then finally, I just want to say again how much I love being your senior pastor. Uh, Thank you for your expressions of love, your encouragement, and also your prayers for me and my wife Gwen and our family. I feel so unworthy at times to be in this role, but Gwen and I are so grateful to God for the privilege of serving alongside all of you and our staff in what I believe is the greatest cause ever given to man. So may God bless you all, and may his favor... May he bless you all and may his favor and power and his blessing continue to be showered upon us as 
we continue to seek his face, pray, and humbly follow his leading. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand with me as we just open our time in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your love and for your church and for revealing yourself to us, Lord, through uh, your living word, Jesus, and also through your written word, the scriptures. And Lord, as we now dig into our series in Colossians again, I would ask, Lord, that you would just open our minds to what you want to show us and teach us. Lord, that you would soften our hearts and then you'd give us the courage, Lord, to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, Soul Revolution, John Burke tells about a time that he stood by the side of his father's grave, a man who had been very successful as a businessman. In that moment of reflection, John recalled his father's last words. His father said, I'd give it all back if I could just have my health and family. John pondered the last words of his father as he looked at the dates on his father's tombstone. 1933-1980. And John writes, it's strange how a life gets summed up by two dates or with two dates with a dash in between. We get a birthday, we get a death day, and we have little control over either of those. But we can choose whether the dash in between will mean everything or nothing. Most people, at least in the Western world, they they give their lives to something they believe will bring meaning and satisfaction in life. But they often, when they get it, when they achieve it, they wonder, well, is that all that there is? Michael Jordan asked this question when he retired from professional basketball at the age of 30. Can you imagine retiring at the age of 30? Jordan was arguably the greatest player to ever play professional basketball. He was a hero to millions. He had more money than he could possibly spend in a lifetime, and yet his father's sudden death served as a wake-up call in his life. He told the press, one thing about my father's death was it reinforced how life can be taken away from you at any time. The stuff of life, the fame, The money, even his passion for the game, had lost its meaning for Jordan. It no longer was enough. He essentially said, been there, done that, now what? The sense of detached meaninglessness is not limited to burned out multi-million dollar athletes. About the time that Michael Jordan retired, Forbes magazine devoted its 75th anniversary edition to a single topic. Why do we feel so bad when we have it so good? 
The writers noted that North Americans live better than any other people on the planet, and yet so many are bored, so many are depressed, so many are lonely and unsatisfied. Of course, this is not solely a modern malady either. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon tested, and he tried everything that life had to offer under the sun. And he came up empty. He concluded that nothing really satisfied. It was all meaningless. In the end, he came to the same conclusion that the psalmist did when he said in Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. And this is the primary theme of the book of Colossians. In her study, you may recall that the believers at Colossae were newer to the faith. And they were being challenged by a group of people who had infiltrated that little church and held to the heretical teaching that we now refer to as Gnosticism. And essentially, they believed that Jesus, he was all right, good guy, but that he wasn't enough. That he lacked the authority and the power to be their savior or to meet their needs. And this was creating a spirit of uncertainty in some of the believers at Colossae. Their trust in Christ was wavering. As they were being conned, they were being tempted to look to things other than Christ for meaning, fulfillment, and the answers to their prayers. And so in the first two chapters of this letter, Paul clearly articulates who Jesus is. If you look at chapter 1, verse 15, Paul spells out in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the invisible God who out of love for us became visible. Not only to identify with us and to show us who God is, he became fully human. In order to die for us, pay for our sins against a holy God. Jesus is not someone that God created as some were saying and as some say today. No, right, wrote Paul, Jesus is God who is the creator and the sustainer of all things in the universe. And given that at this very moment he is holding the universe together he is not only worthy of, of our worship and our adoration, but also of our complete trust and allegiance. Jesus is all you need, folks. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your eternity. You can trust him to not only meet your needs, but also to be the source of your greatest satisfaction in life. But here's the thing. The victory and the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ, the meaning and the fulfillment that is found in Jesus Christ does not come to those who are only partially surrendered to Him. It only comes to those who put their total trust in Christ, who surrender their lives completely to Him as Lord. Paul says, we need to be all in with Jesus. 
And when you're all in with Christ, you will be a different person in a good way, which is what Paul emphasizes in chapters 3 and 4, which we're going to look at and begin to look at right now. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're just going to read the first four verses of chapter 3 together. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You may be seated. Now, Paul says here, since then you have been raised with Christ. I just want to stop there for a moment. I want you to note that he's talking to Christ followers here. People who have put their total trust in Jesus. My question to you right up front is, have you been raised with Christ? Have you surrendered your life completely to Jesus Christ. Many people embrace Jesus for what he can do for them. But if they were to be really honest, they really have no intention to follow him or to live for him. They say, Jesus, I'll embrace you as my savior because I want to go to heaven. Heaven beats hell. I choose heaven. Or because I need you to heal my marriage or my family to help me with my work situation, or to heal my body. But I'm not prepared to follow you as my Lord and my Master. But friends, make no mistake, if you come to Jesus this way, if you want Him only to be your personal genie or your personal Santa Claus, you have no intention of following Him as Lord, you will receive from Him exactly nothing. Which is why, by the way, some Christians get really upset and frustrated with God. And they conclude that their Christian life isn't real, it's meaningless, because they refuse to be all in with Jesus. Now you say, but isn't salvation a free gift? Absolutely. We cannot purchase our way. We can't bargain our way. We can't work our way to heaven through our own efforts to be good or to do good. Jesus came and died on the cross to make it possible, and he offers it to us as a free gift. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace, in other words, what God has done for us through Christ, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. In this regard, salvation is absolutely free. 
However, here in Colossians 3 and other passages of Scripture, Paul teaches that the gift of grace really involves two things. First, it involves a gift, the gift of Jesus himself. It involves the gift of Jesus himself. Jesus isn't offering you a system of beliefs. He's not offering you a manual on how to live a better life. He isn't offering you a formula for successful living. No, Jesus is offering you a relationship with himself, a new life of victory and freedom in him. And all these other things, when you seek him first, will be added out of that relationship. When you embrace Christ fully as your Savior and Lord, he invades your life and he makes you spiritually alive in him because prior to that, you were spiritually dead. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, you have been raised Think of his resurrection. He was raised. And he said, because I live, you too shall live. He was raised. And it says here, you have been raised with Christ if you truly have embraced him as Lord. You are now one with Christ. He is in you. You are in him. You no longer belong to the world, but you belong to him. The old is gone. The new life has come. And his wisdom and his resurrection power is available to you. I trust you realize that. If you lean into him by faith. But here's the thing. If you want all that he has for you, then you must give him all of you. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 6. Just back up a few verses. He writes, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as what? Go ahead, say it. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. It doesn't say just as you received Christ Jesus as Savior. No, it says, Lord, you must surrender to him as Lord, Master, and King. He won't have it any other way. And here's why. Two reasons. First reason. Because as our creator God, he is worthy of our exclusive worship. Exodus 20, verse 3, God gives this command. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me explain that with an illustration. Let's say a young man has been dating a young woman for over a year. And after that year of being with her, he decides that she's the one he wants to spend the rest of his life with her. And so he sets it all up and he proposes to her and to his delight she bursts into tears of joy and says yes, yes, yes I do 
They hug and they kiss, and he thinks, wow, I'm the most fortunate guy on the planet. But then she throws a little curveball at him that he just wasn't expecting. She says, honey, I love you, and I truly want to marry you. I just have one little request. There's this other guy that I still like. I'll be faithful to you 364 days a year, but would it be okay if I was with him just one day a year? His first reaction to her question is surely she must be joking. But when he finds out that she isn't, I don't need to explain why he walked away from that relationship and why any normal, healthy guy or gal would walk away from such a relationship. You see, we would all do the same thing because we're made in the image of God. It's wired into us. Only our God See, he's holy. Unlike us, I mean, he is totally holy and he's totally perfect. And he simply won't take second place to anyone else, to any other God. Which is why right up front he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it is an affront to him and his majesty and his holiness when we say, Jesus, I surrender all to you except this one thing. But there's a second reason Jesus wants us to worship him and him alone. And that's because our God is not just a holy God, but he's a jealous God. In Exodus 20, verse 5, we read, you shall not bow down to them and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, God is not jealous in a selfish, neurotic, or paranoid way that some people are of their spouse. I mean, they're scary people like that. Not at all. No, the word jealous here actually means zealous. In other words, God is zealous that it will go well with us. He zealously has our best interests at heart. Even though he is worthy of our total allegiance, he knows that when we worship anything or anyone other than him, or we try to worship two masters or two gods at the same time, he knows it will not go well with us. Pastor John Ogilvie explains it this way. He says, as, I pa as a pastor, I listen to people in life's excruciating problems, and I have come to the conviction that most of the things which tear us apart are caused by divided loyalties between Christ and our own agenda. 
In other words, he says, areas that we haven't yet fully surrendered to God. And when they are taken from us, or when they don't happen as we thought they would, we're shocked. And we go through a process of grieving because, you see, we haven't died to it yet. We haven't surrendered it yet. A woman loses her husband to death and is so heartbroken, she has no desire to keep living. A man loses his job of many years and is so devastated that he feels all of his years of hard work have been a total waste of time. A middle-aged single woman had hoped that she'd be married one day. She's given up hope. And is so bitter, she says, there's nothing left to live for. You see, says John, these people are devastated because even though they may have sung, I surrender all, in reality, they hadn't surrendered certain things to God. And it was those things that turned out to be the source of their greatest disappointment, defeat, tragedy, and or loss. Now please understand, there's nothing wrong with having a good position, being popular, having possessions, enjoying a good marriage or a happy, God-fearing family. But when we put our trust in these things for our sense of value and our sense of identity, when we trust them for our security, in short, when we don't surrender them to God, when we refuse to hold them with an open hand, or in the words of Paul, refuse to die to these temporary earthly things, we are setting ourselves up, not only for disappointment, but huge discouragement and devastation even. Which is why God says, please, Worship me and me only. Please, I'm zealous for you and your best interest. Do not worship any of these other gods. Which is why he calls us to surrender everything to him. To use and enjoy them for sure. But to die to the hold that these earthly things can so easily have over us. So first of all, the gift of grace involves the gift of Jesus himself. A relationship through which we can live in victory and live with joy and freedom if we surrender everything to him. And trust him fully. Secondly, the gift of grace also involves the gift of a new heart. The grace involves the gift of himself, a relationship with himself, and it involves the gift of a new heart. 
Look again what he writes. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Paul writes, when you embrace Jesus as your Lord, you come alive in him. Your heart is changed. You see, friends, this is the difference, just as an aside here, this is the difference between a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ and religious legalism. Remember, Paul talked about legalism in chapter 2. But you see, religious legalism focuses on the outside. It focuses on our behaviors, and it basically says, if I behave right, then I will become right with God. And some people will look at chapters 3 and 4 and say, okay, if I do all those things, then hopefully I'm right with God. Well, you missed it, if that's what you conclude. Because you see, a genuine relationship with Christ focuses on our heart, not on our behavior. It focuses on our heart. It works from the inside out. I become right with God, my heart is changed, and my changed heart motivates me to begin to behave right. And that makes all the difference from a perspective, point of view. When Christ enters your life, your heart is filled with new desires and new longings, which results ultimately in new behaviors. Because you've put the past behind. Paul writes, you died to the past. You died to the old way of doing things and thinking about things. Now I'm reminded of the famous actor and comedian Mickey Rooney. Who died a couple of years ago. Rooney often drank. And consequently he developed a reputation as a crass, crude, angry and insulting person. Sometime before he passed away, Rooney was interviewed by a journalist. And this journalist had become aware of a dramatic change in Rooney's life. And near the end of the interview, he asked Rooney about it. Rooney calmly replied, I don't mean to sound ecclesiastical, but recently I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now my past is gone. See, when we rise with Christ, when we embrace him by faith as our Lord and King, the old is gone. Your regrets are gone. The new has come. A new life a changed life, a new person in Christ has begun. Paul writes, evidence of this is that your heart and your mind will begin to focus on things above, on the things of God. In other words, your affections and your thoughts 
are going to focus far more on the eternal things of God than the things of earth. Which leads me to ask a very practical question because I'm sure you've all heard the quote. You know, it makes us a bit nervous, but, you know, we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. So when we start thinking about putting our minds on things above, we go, oh my goodness. You know, I don't want to start being flaky and all the rest of it. What does this mean? How do we seek the things above that he's talking about? Well, there are many ways, I'm sure, but here are a few. First of all, read and meditate on the Scriptures daily. Again, I want to remind you that when Paul talks about setting your hearts and your minds on things above, he's not really talking about heaven itself so much as he's talking about who is there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, if you want to know the mind of God, I suppose one option you have is that you could create your own God. You could guess who God is. You could guess what God is like, which unfortunately is what far too many people are doing today. I mean, they say things like, well, I believe in a God who is like this, and I definitely don't believe in a God who would do that or, you know, would say this. And in the end, they worship a God made in their own image rather than worshiping the true God in whose image they are made. They just kind of put their image of God together the way people put together a puzzle. But that's one option. You can make up a God in your own image, a God that you like and that you can live with. That is totally your prerogative. Or, option two, is you can humble yourself and you can seek to know the God who is by reading, studying, and meditating on the scriptures, which was given for that very purpose. Look at Colossians 3.16. It says this, let the message, in other words, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. To know the Word of God is to know the mind and the heart of God. And that is the primary reason we gather weekly in worship services like this that we might come to know more fully the heart and the mind and the character and the purpose and the direction of our God. And not only through the teaching of the Word, which of course is very important, but also uh, through the songs that we sing. That if you think about it, they not only express our worship and our praise to God, but they remind us of the truth of who God is. But the 75 or 90 minutes that we are together in a time like this to keep our minds and hearts set on things above, we need more than just this.
We need to be in the Word of God daily. And as you read and study God's Word and you humbly apply the specific words that He gives you, which are the rhema words of God, you will start to see and you'll start thinking about life the way God sees and thinks about life. You'll begin to see the good, the bad, and the ugly things in life, the tragedies, the hardships, the excruciating hardships of life from His eternal perspective. You'll begin to see the difference between how our world views materialism and how God views materialism, how our world views sex and how God views sex, how the world views um, position and how God views position and authority, how the world views fame and how God views fame. Through the stories of real people in the scriptures and the teachings of the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles and of Jesus and the dangers, the disappointment and the heartbreak that can accompany these and many other things in life when we don't deal with them according to the precepts of the Lord. You'll be reminded that no matter what you're facing in life, God is with you that he has your best interests at heart, that he can be trusted, that he's in control, and he has the power to change things. You'll be reminded, as Paul says here in verse 3, that as his child, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, what that's referring to is your worth and your identity is really linked to Jesus Christ. You see, the world evaluates your worth by how much you own. It evaluates your worth by how much influence you have. It evaluates your worth based on the kind of status symbols that you surround yourself with. But that is not the true basis of your identity. Your identity and your worth are hidden with Christ because you are and I belong to him. We are his precious forever children. Whom he loves and accepts so much that he died for us. And no one can ever take that away from us. So first of all, get in the word, read it, meditate on it daily. Secondly, pray without ceasing. If you want to set your hearts on things above, if you want to embrace the mind of God, pray without ceasing. As you go throughout the day, invite Jesus into your world. Invite him to do your day with you. Talk to him about everything. Thank and praise him constantly for his amazing grace and love and blessings in life. You know, years ago, before uh, cell phones came out and, you know, all, the, all of that, if you talked out loud, I mean, people would think, ooh, boy, that boy's got a problem. Now, you can do it in your car. You can walk down the street. I'd say to, you know, people start talking to me, and I, uh, you know, suddenly I realize they're talking to somebody on the phone. So, man, you can just talk out loud. You can talk to God all day long. Don't have to worry about that anymore. 
So just kind of just, you know, picture him right there with you. Ask him to give you his perspective of the people, the events, the circumstances you face in life. Always give thanks, knowing that he's in control. Nothing surprises him. And that you can trust him with whatever concerns you today. Thirdly, if you want to set your heart to things above and, 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 you know, dial into God's agenda, spend time alone with God often. Take time every day to, to, to be with God and his word alone, to hear his voice, to reflect on his word and to share your heart with him in prayer. You know, life happens so fast. We, we, we kind of function as a culture you know, on lightning speed. And we just need to stop once in a while. We just need to hit the pause button, shut down the computer, shut out the noise and the clutter, and just relax and dial into the heart and the eternal, and, and kind of get God's eternal perspective again. You know, I know that taking an hour a day, a half a day or more a week, a few days every few months. I mean, to do this may seem impossible to some of you, but it is so important if we want to keep setting our affections and our thoughts on things above. We all need the break. We need the rest. We need the recalibration. Trust me, the world will get along without you just fine while you're doing that. I don't know how long you slept last night. I'm guessing somewhere between six to eight hours. Hey, the world got along just fine while you were... <laughs> if you don't answer your email right away, puppies and kittens will not combust all over the world. Promise. Everything will be just fine. Just do it. Take a Sabbath. Take a break. Fourthly, be in community with other people. Spend time, do life with people who want to know the heart of God like you do. Who want to learn what it means to live the Jesus-shaped life. Notice again in verse 15 and 16, Paul reminds us that we are members of one body. He calls us to teach one another, encourage and admonish one another through singing and psalms and hymns. Well, some of us, a little scary the way we sing, might not be a great encouragement, but... The important thing is, is that we're there for one another, and that's what community is all about. Sometimes God uses people in our lives to help us to stay focused on things that matter to Him, to remind us of God's perspective when we've lost perspective because of what we're going through. And then finally, identify what stirs your affections for Christ and also what robs you of your affection for Christ. You know, sometimes we're unaware of the little things that can steal our affection for Christ. One author I read talked about how his love for a certain sport and a certain team literally became an idol to him, to the place where everything and everyone, including God, was put on hold every time that team was playing or every time there were highlights about that team on television. And he remembers distinctly in the middle of a game getting a prompting from God to pray now about a situation. And he just put it all on hold. He said, God, there's eight minutes left in the game. Just hold on. Just hold on. 
What are the things or who are the people who, who, who draw you in, keep you away from the things of God and investing in the things of God? How often, for example, does a certain television series or the pull to surf on the net rob you of your time with Christ, your affection for Christ? Most of these things are not immoral. They're not necessarily wrong in themselves. It's just that at times they can sabotage our intimacy with, with God. On the other hand, what is it that stirs your affection for Christ and his agenda? You know, songs of worship like our night of worship that we're having tonight stir my affection for Christ and his agenda. It's not so much the music, but a combination of the words and the music that does something to my heart. That so often reminds me of who he is and who I am in Christ. And why nothing matters more than knowing and loving and serving him and others. Having a spiritual conversation with someone. Or hearing the testimony of someone whose life has been radically changed through Jesus also stirs my affection for Jesus. About two to three years ago on Christmas Eve, a, a, a man approached me and he told me how many years ago he put a rock under this platform that I'm standing on. You might remember some of you, there's hundreds, thousands of rocks under here. And he wrote the names on that rock of several family members whom he dearly loved and was praying for family members who didn't know Jesus personally. And, with, and he proceeded to tell me that over the following years, one by one, members of his family finally agreed to come with him to services like this. And over time, one by one, they put their trust in Jesus. And that now, they were joining him and in inviting a whole bunch of other people to our services. And a number of those people were coming to faith in Christ as well. I walked away from that conversation vibrating. My heart nearly exploded with joy. You know how sometimes your inside voice kind of short circuits and becomes your outside voice? Well, that kind of happened to me in that moment. I just shouted out loud, Jesus, you are absolutely amazing. And then I realized it was my outside voice and someone said amen to that. But few things stir up my affection for Jesus more than a life that's been radically changed by his amazing grace. Ministering to others who are sick or dying or have some other need also stirs up my affection for Jesus. You know, when I visit someone who's dying in a hospice and I leave... I'm just reminded of the brevity of life. That I'm mortal. Sometimes I'm driving away and I'm, I'm thinking about the stuff I've spent hours fretting about. The stuff I'm worrying about. Carrying in this backpack. That in perspective mean nothing 
But it's like the Lord just recalibrates my perspective on life. A couple of years ago, a group of us staff went to Buchanan Elementary School just across the street here. Spent about 45 minutes to an hour reading to children there. I had the privilege of reading to a girl in grade two. Before we sat down, I asked what her name was and just asked a few questions about her family. I learned that her parents weren't together, that she hadn't seen her father in years. She told me a few other things I won't go into except to say it quickly became apparent to me that her life and life with her mom was challenging. She knew that we were from the church here, and, and so she asked about our church. She said, you know, I'm going to ask my mom if we can come there sometime. Now, most of us, we were in this large room. We read to the children we were reading to in the same open room. And as I read to her, I noticed that she began to snuggle up next to me. And my heart just went out to her, wondering what life was really like for her. And when I was done reading to her, I took her back to her classroom, and she looked up at me, she smiled, and she said, thank you for reading to me, and I gave her a little hug. And I watched her go get her lunch and then make her way to her classroom. And she waved at me again as she went by and said, bye. And then I was leaving. I was already talking with some of the other staff members. All of a sudden, she came out of the classroom, walked over to me and gave me another big hug, wrapping her arms around my waist. And I was broken. I had to fight back the tears. Even though I had never met her before, in just 45 minutes, my heart was broken for that little girl. My heart went to things above. Because the Lord reminded me of all the children who live around our church building here. All the children who live in this city who are hurting and lonely. And Jesus loves them. Asks us to be his hands and his feet in their life. That little 45-minute encounter with that little girl took me to my father's heart for children. So let me ask you, what kind of things stir your affections for Christ? and his call in your life. I mean, if you can't think of any, perhaps you could begin by reaching out and serving somewhere. Because as I just indicated many times, it's in the context of serving others that our hearts and our minds are drawn to the heart of God. I'll wrap up with this closing thought. You know, the Bible makes it clear that we get one shot at life. As I pointed out near the beginning of this message, your gravestone 
will have a birth date and it will have an end date. And the life that you live will be represented by the dash between those two dates. If you have been raised with Christ, if you've truly surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, how serious are you about the things that concern our Lord? How serious are you about the things above, about the things of God? What are you giving your life to? When you look at what motivates you, are you pursuing the good life? Or are you pursuing the God life, the life that God has for you, the faith adventures that he wants you to enter into? If you knew that you only had a year to live, would you give your life to the same things that you're giving your life to right now? Or would you make changes? And if you would, why not now? What makes you think you're going to be alive a year from now? These are not easy questions because they force us to think about how we're living our lives and to contemplate what's really going to matter in the end. More importantly, they reveal what our hearts and minds are really set on and whether or not Jesus is really the Lord of our lives. Would you please stand for closing prayer? just open your hands to the Lord and let's just ask him again those two questions Lord what are you saying to me what are you saying to me and Lord what do you want me to do about it Take a moment right now to have that conversation with him.
Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your word. As we've talked about, as we study and as we read and meditate on your word, we begin to understand your heart. We begin to understand your character. And we begin to understand, Lord, that your love is so amazing for us that you are zealous for our best interest. And Lord, when we surrender all to you, when we make you Lord of our lives, we will never regret it. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doubts that, who doesn't believe that, Lord, that you'll change their heart. Lord, that whether it's now or sometime in the future, Lord, you will help them to realize that it is only when we surrender to you that we experience the full life. So we thank you for your word and its truth. Now give us the courage, Lord, to live it out. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.